Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I am back after... I, we're having all kinds of issues here tonight. We have... Uh, uh, I just having technical problems. I just had to, like, suddenly reboot uh, here, like, about five minutes ago. And um, we had um, issues with... Um, I, I had a, I had a serious homework crisis uh, uh, for one of my kids that I had helped manage, uh, like <laughs> three minutes after class was supposed to start. So anyway, we are we are on the move now. So that's all good. Um, okay, I think I'm. Yeah. All right. Um, making sure I got everything in order here. I think I got everything in order. Excellent. So, welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is episode number 115, in which we will see, well, the aftermath of the tense moment between Frodo and Bilbo, uh, in which Bilbo's mysterious friend is revealed, right? That's where, uh, that's where we're going to get here tonight. So, um, uh, before we begin, let me just, there are a couple, uh, uh, quick, a couple quick announcements I have to make, including one fairly exciting one. So the the, the routine things. Uh, don't forget our two moots that are upcoming. We've got uh, a New England moot, which is happening on the 29th of September here, so in only a few weeks now. Um, and that's going to be up here near me in Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm in New Hampshire, but it's not too far away. Um, so in Amherst, Massachusetts, on the 29th of uh, of uh, September, this very month as is. So uh, uh, there's still plenty of time to sign up for that, though. And um, the uh, other, of course, this, the other moot that is coming up soon, uh, second soonest, is Middle Moot out in Iowa, and that's going to be on the 12th of October. Still, the registration is still open for both of those. Um, we have um, uh, we have the let's see, am, am I going on? I'm, I'm going on. Uh, Twitch, right? Yeah, okay, good. That's right. I thought so. All right. Uh, when does registration close? We should keep re- be able to keep registration open uh, for both of them uh, for a while yet. I don't think... Um, for the New England one, I don't know exactly the date we're going to close that. I hope we'll be able to keep it open for a while. But, um, uh, yeah. Uh, but definitely stay in touch. The life, if you get locked out, don't worry. We'll let you in. Um, We'll figure it out one way or the other. Uh, so anyway, Middle Moot's going to be awesome out in Iowa. That's the 12th of October, so you can sign up for that. We also have two more moots that are going to be happening later this fall. Uh, and we don't have official announcements yet, but it, we're, we're getting closer to that all the time. We're looking at Magnolia Moot probably in the beginning of, uh, of, of November. Maybe the, it's either the last weekend in October or the first weekend uh, in, uh, in November. And that's going to be down in the Charlotte area again in North Carolina. And then we're going to have Baymoot, our second Baymoot, shifted up from late summer to late fall now. And that's going to be near the end of, uh, of, of Thanksgiving, probably uh, the weekend before Thanksgiving uh, is the probable date of, uh, uh, of Baymoot. Uh, out in the San Francisco area, so uh, going to be I'm going to be uh, uh, really excited to visit those places again and see folks again. Those those are second time moots, both of those. 
Uh, so we have a first-time moot, a third-time moot in middle moot, and then two second-time moots out in, uh, in North Carolina and the Bay Area in California. Um, so, but I also have an announcement about our big moot. I am wearing my shirt from MythMoot 6 this past year, uh, this past June. And uh, that is because... We officially have dates for MythMoot 7, so you can put this on your calendar. Registration's not open yet, uh, but we have our dates June 25th through 28th of 2019, pretty much the same time as this past year. We've done it uh, in that around that time slot for the last couple years, and that has seemed to work really well. So, But that's official now. Uh, June 25th to 28th, 2019 for MythMoot 7. We're going to be in the same venue again. I love that venue. That's been, uh, that's been super fun. You can see our the, uh, the picture here is from our reenactment of the flight to the Ford. That's Frodo and Asphaloth uh, galloping towards the Ford there uh, in the picture. Um, so uh, anyway, and of course, we're going we're gonna to do Mootcast again. That was, uh, I was delighted by uh, Mootcast this past year. I thought that worked out splendidly. Uh, so um, uh, we're definitely going to, uh, we're definitely going to, uh, going to do that again. Um, and our theme. Our theme for this year uh, is defying and defining the darkness. Uh, it's taken from a quote from Anne, from Diary of Anne Frank, actually. Um, uh, so some really cool potentials for topics and discussions there. Um, so, um, yeah, cool. Okay, so there we go. 25th through the 28th of June. Okay. Oh, and last thing. Uh, so the last uh, uh, announcement that I wanted to make uh, is to no, not tomorrow. Today's Tuesday. Two days from now, on Thursday night, we are having our next film film episode. And um, yeah, so uh, I accidentally, <laughs> so I made a mistake with the link. So normally we have our we 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 host that usually on GoToWebinar and Twitch as well. You can still attend on the Twitch channel, and it won't change anything. But uh, if you usually attend through the GoToWebinar link, um, there's a new link. You have to sign up for a new link. Sorry about that. My fault. Uh, but anyway, we have that, and it's posted on the Sim Film page on the MythGuard.org uh, site. So you can go there. If you're confused, that's where to go to get that. Or you can just show up on Twitch, and you'll be able to see it there as well. Um, okay. Cool. Um, very good. So that's... Um, I think that's it. I think it's everything. I'm just trying to make sure I'm remembering all the things. I think I've remembered all the things. Yes, I've remembered all the things. Great. I will. I'm shutting down my reminder of things there. Okay. Excellent. Um, uh, cool. All right. Well, tonight uh, we are going back. As a, oh, ooh, hang on a second. I wanted to announce something else as well. I almost forgot about this. So, um, I'm, I'm not going to be totally firm on the dates on this, but I wanted to tell you about something special that's going to be happening soon. Um, 
Many of you, I'm sure, I hope, uh, also, uh, in addition to being followers of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, are also uh, uh, listeners of the Prancing Pony podcast. The Prancing Pony guys, Alan and Sean, are wonderful uh, uh, Tolkien guys, wonderful podcasters. I'm a big fan of their podcast. Um, We've had them at Mythmoot. Uh, They came to Textmoot last year. Um, I always really enjoy hanging out with Alan and Sean. They're just uh, wonderful people uh, and a really, really great uh, podcast. Um, Well, if you do follow the Prancing Pony podcast, you will know that they have begun this incredibly hasty and very short-term discussion of The Lord of the Rings, um, in which they're only taking like three, four episodes per chapter or something like that, which is a method. You know, it works for them, and that's all. It's it's all fine. Um, Though, So even though they gave us here at Exploring the Lord of the Rings like a two-year head start... um, they uh they're catching they're almost catching up with us so uh we were in touch earlier this year and we were kind of joking about the fact that when we uh when we cross um we should uh we should celebrate and the time is coming right around the end of uh of this chapter right around the end of many meetings uh at the beginning of the council of elrond is right about uh when our two discussions are going to cross so uh, we are planning to have uh, some celebratory uh, crossover episodes uh, in order to uh, sort of celebrate this moment in time when when their rapid progress through the text crosses our very slow and measured pace uh, through the text. Um, so um, anyway, yeah, so so what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to appear on their uh, discussion, probably the first episode when they discuss, you know, the, their first session on the Council of Elrond. Uh, and they're going to come uh, on Exploring the Lord of the Rings probably uh, beginning of November is when we're is when we're thinking is 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 going to be likely there. Um so uh so yeah so we'll have them here as guests and I'll be there uh on their show as as a guest and uh it's going to be a lot of fun. So anyway, just wanted to uh, uh to let you guys know that that's happening. I think it's going to be it's it's as I always enjoy uh, I always enjoy uh talking with them. So uh that's going to be a lot of fun. I had I had to admit the last time I talked about it with them was several months ago and I was like, "Oh yeah, we're going to be in the Council of Elrond by like September at the latest." And uh and then I was you know we were emailing back this week again and I'm like, "Well, okay, so about that." Um <laughs> anyway, yeah. So we're going to see, we're going to get pretty close to the start of the poem tonight. I mean, pretty close, I think. Uh, we might even start the poem next week. It could happen. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how close we get. Uh, we get from there. But yeah, I told him there's like no way we're going to get to the Council of Elrond by the beginning of October. That is certainly, I cannot possibly happen at this point. Um, anyway, okay. So, just wanted to let you know that that was um, that that was that that was coming. Um, all right, two uh, things I wanted to address before we get back in the text. Two questions, uh, really good uh, points from the discussion board. So, storied past was asking about the dwarves. I'm really glad you you asked this. This is a really excellent question. I'm thinking about the comment that Glowin makes about how they've, you know, they're better at building and mining now in Erebor than they were of old. He says, why did Tolkien give the dwarves any greater achievements now than they had previously made? 
As I best understand it, this this is, I think, unique in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien, the medievalist, seemed very content to have his subcreation's history descend from heights that it could never reach again. It seems to be part of the basic thread weaving all of Middle-earth together. It's going downhill. The past cannot be preserved. It cannot be reachieved. It certainly cannot be bettered. The slide may be halted temporarily and some of the loss even reversed briefly, but nothing is getting better. So why are the dwarves getting better at doing anything than they had been in the past? Um, really great question. Uh, we did kind of skim over this. Rather, we talked about this passage, but we didn't talk about this particular question. Why, why should this be at all? Um, and storied past, I think I would say, now there was another uh, sort of a, a, a little threaded discussion that went on for a while after this question. And I think that I would throw in, uh, on the side of, I think it was Anthony Lawler, um, who was saying that this is probably just a local Thing That is to say, this is not to imply that the skill of the dwarves is increasing over time, like that they alone are defining, or not, not defining, defying. See, it's like the theme of Mythmoot. Um, they, they alone, it's not that they alone are, are defying that downward trend uh, and descent and that the, the, the skill of the dwarves is increasing and increasing. In fact, of course, you know, storied uh, uh, past, as you will have noticed, even in that, you know, the, the, not only... The fact that he says they can't compete in Metalsmith with the works of their fathers, but like the way that he says it, right, makes it pretty clear that he's like, you know, all oh, like, you know, that it's he's not even saying like, well, you know, we haven't quite got there yet. Right. That's not that's not what he's saying. Right. He's like, it's he that's that's done. There's no way they're going to compete uh, with their fathers in that. So we can still see that general trend, right? There's there's like an acknowledgement of that general trend, even from Glowin himself in that speech. And then, of course, though, but as you point out, he has, he says this, hey, we've gotten better. So I think it was Anthony who said, again, this doesn't necessarily imply that dwarves as a whole are improving or increasing, or even that the dwarves of Erebor are better at building and mining than like dwarves have ever been. Um, so I, I, I do think it seems to me the most sensible interpretation of that to think that they are better than their fathers there at Erebor. They have managed to improve on Erebor, right? That doesn't mean that they are better than, say, Moria, right? And I think we'll have to see, and hey, it won't be that long, right? Until we get to Moria, we should be there uh, by 2022 at least. Um, uh, but anyway, when we get to Moria, we'll see, I think, think that Glowen's words are going to suggest that what is there in Moria uh, is beyond anything that they could have done in Erebor, right? So um, that so it's not that, again, the dwarves are, are on this steady march of progress upwards, contrary to everywhere else in Middle-earth. It's just that they have sort of risen higher in this one point than their immediate forefathers that is, the old Ereborian dwarves pre-Smaug, but not, like, greater than, you know, their fathers of old, who built Moria, uh, who built Khazad-dûm. And that kind of thing is is not so hard. Remember, a, a story passed, I think it was you um, who... Um, I, I think it was you who suggested, or who kind of gave us a parallel the the restoration of the kingship in Gondor, right? Things do get better. There is a kind of return to the past, right? Not fully, but at least like a recollection of the past. Um, 
uh, and a local improvement uh, uh, there in Gondor, right? As some of the ancient things, right? Some of the ancient skills, some of the ancient, uh, even, you know, Aragorn himself as sort of personal throwback, right? Um, doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that he's greater than Elendil was. It just means that he is closer to Elendil than, uh, you know, like his immediate uh, contemporaries or, you know, his immediate predecessors, uh, certainly the immediate predecessors there uh, in, uh, uh, in Gondor. Exactly. The plateau and return to a memory of what it used to be. Exactly. Exactly. And so my suspicion is that that's exactly what we're seeing in Erebor. Because remember, there's even a, a kind of a parallel there that works, right? You know, the whole Thorin Oakenshield, the return of the king under the mountain. I mean, remember, the Hobbit is uh, a return of the king story, right? And the whole, you know, restoration of the prosperity of the area and, you know, the river shall run with gold and all that kind of thing that we get in The Hobbit, it's, it's um, you know, it's one of the ways in which The Hobbit story changes most significantly. It's a treasure hunt for the first half of the book, right? When Thorin pops out of the barrel and goes into Lake Town, it becomes a Return of the King story. I mean, he is, in, he may be in theory a king returning home, but that's not how he talks about it in Chapter 1. Right in chapter one, it's their treasure that they're after. It's a treasure, and again, tre- in calling it a treasure hunt, I'm of course quoting Bumber, uh, right when he's carrying Bilbo at the end of chapter four. Um, it's a treasure hunt at the beginning. It becomes a return of the king story when they arrive uh, in Lake Town, which is really the point at which the uh, the sort of the narrative of, of the Hobbit shifts right into a different gear, which is of course where Tolkien picked it up after having left it aside for a while. Anyway. Point is, um, we have that exactly the same kind of restoration. Or there's, I, you know, just as there's a parallel between the return of the king under the mountain to Erebor and the return of the king of Gondor uh, in the return of the king, uh, so we can see a parallel, um, you know, return to the old times or an approximation closer to the old times than things had been in a while. Right in both places, so I think that that's what we're seeing, and so that that makes sense. I don't think it is in defiance of these trends. I don't think he's making the dwarves of Erebor an exception, but it's not to say that what you're pointing out isn't significant. It totally is. Like it's very noticeable. It's very unusual, and it suggests something really momentous. Right, something really big is happening. Just as, of course, Aragorn's return to the throne of Gondor is something very momentous in Gondor, right? Um, really in all of the, you know, the, 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 the turning from the third age to the fourth age. So um, I, I definitely think that although it, you know, it happens more off stage and everything, um, Glowen's words about what's going on over there at Erebor, um, you know, I, Erebor doesn't get nearly the, you know, the stage time that uh, obviously that Gondor is going to get. But we are, I think, being instructed uh, that it is essentially a sort of a parallel thing. Um, yeah, exactly, Galandar. The results of The Hobbit were very important and had real lasting effects. Absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the things that Glowen is kind of communicating uh, uh, to us. Um, yeah, no, I do not think that he's saying that dwarves have never been this good in general. And again, I think that that's going to be affirmed by Gimli. Right, um, who is not going to be looking around Khazad Doom and saying, "Yeah, it's not like home, though." 
right? That's not going to be uh, his reaction to seeing Hasad Doom. Absolutely. Um, but that's a really great question. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, uh, last one. Oh, man, I know it, right? Isn't like more dwarf stories, not only in the fourth age and beyond, but in the third age, right? I mean, dwarves, dwarves are such a great untapped set of stories in Tolkien in general, right? I mean, think about it. Even the stories about dwarves that we get are thin, frankly, right? I mean, Thorin and Company is pretty much the closest that we get to a really full story. And even that, not really, right? Who's Dan Ironfist? What's his story? He kind of comes in at the end and we're told that he's a good king, but like, what was he doing? What was his life like in the Iron Hills, right? What happened? You know, it's, there's so much of that story that um, we... Um, uh, that we would love to get. So again, even like the bit that we get, and you think about what we learn about the dwarves in the first age, right? With Nagrod and Belagost, I mean, it's such just a little bit of the surface, right? So there's so much more, um, which is why, again, it's very, um, uh, to me, uh, you know, it's such a rich area. I'm looking forward eventually, uh, to getting up to the Iron Hills and stuff in Lotro to see what they did in their world building and, and, and filling in backstory there, because again, it's such a, uh, it's such a wide open field there. Uh, and that's, uh, and that's, and that's pretty cool. Of course, we're, we're doing a little bit of that, uh, in some film as well, and looking to, to, to kind of fill in and understand, uh, the dwarf culture a little bit better, uh, in, uh, in, in the first age with Nagrod and Belagost, uh, in order to, so that when the dwarves come into, uh, the events, right. When we, when we interact with dwarves, uh, in the elf, you know, in the elf eccentric stories, right. Of the Silmarillion, um, that, you know, we, we have a little bit of cultural context, uh, for that. So that's been a, that's been, that's been a fun thing. Um, but, um, anyway, um, so good question. Uh, Arthro had a, uh, an observation about from uh, B- about Bilbo last time, which I thought was worth um, worth reading. Uh, he quotes from the Hobbit: "He may have lost the neighbors' respect, but he gained. Well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end." I was a little excited last night, he says, and I used the word learned instead of gained when commenting upon how Bilbo truly realizes what he realizes in his exchange with Frodo and the Ring in the Hall of Fire. Uh, though I still believe it all comes to a head for Bilbo in this moment with Frodo. Everything Bilbo has done, gained, and learned all comes together in the Hall of Fire and in this exchange with Frodo that isn't particularly verbose or long, just powerful and humbling for Bilbo. I believe this is partly why Bilbo says everything when he says he is sorry. I and others from the discussions last time believe the critical moment for Bilbo is in the Hall of Fire of course, I always want to read that as the HOF as the Hall of Fame. Like, when did Bilbo get in the Hall of Fame? Uh, in many meetings, and I believe it is where the book The Hobbit gets or begins its true conclusion. That is, um, that is a really, really good uh, uh, insight, I think. And I, I, I especially like his point about him pointing, you know, when he says, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for everything. I, I agree. It has exactly that kind of weight. And again, this is where I don't like how... Uh, as much as I really like Ian Holm and I I think Ian Holm's Bilbo is brilliant in that I don't like what Ian Holm did with that line, whether it was his idea or or Jackson's idea or whatever. I don't like what he did with that line. Uh, that kind of self pitying, the kind of self pitying tears that he breaks into, uh, when he, 
uh, when he says that, this is so much deeper, so much bigger for Bilbo, right? Um, I think that Arnthrow is completely correct. He is in this moment really understanding things for the first time. There's so many things he's been in denial about. He's been refusing to see. He's been rationalizing. He's been oblivious to, right? Um, because he never wanted to think about them. He never wanted to think that the ring was causing his uh, apparent his uh, his apparent longevity, right? Um, he never wanted to think that there was anything wrong with the ring, or that the ring could be doing anything um, anything for him uh, to him rather. Um, and certainly, of course, because that would mean it was doing something to Frodo now too. Um, yeah. Anyway, so there's there's uh, the combination of kind of cluelessness and cunning that seems to be revealed in the earlier comments he had just been making before that moment with Frodo, right about offering to go back and get the ring and stuff. Um, it does seem both of those two things balance together, doesn't it? Both cluelessness and also cunning. Um, and now he sees through both of them, right? Now he, he, he gets it. And so although I still hold, I don't think it's possible that he could have been told that he could know that his ring is the Sauron's one ring, right? I don't think he could possibly have that piece of information right now. Um, I wonder if he even sort of figures it out here. Um, I wonder if it may well be that when he is going to hear that at the council, I think maybe he's not going to be surprised at the council because I, I mean, basically I am willing to give him even that much credit in this moment of insight. Right, that he that he realizes it. Um, uh, yeah, Belongsmont. I do think that he has enough indirect information, um, and I suspect, by the way, that in Bilbo's work as a scholar, that he's clearly been doing in Rivendell since he's been there. Right. Um, you know, we talked briefly last time about you know is like the ring lore of the elves. You know, how kind of common knowledge is that essentially? You know. Um, is this something that Bilbo would have stumbled upon in his researches? Not necessarily. I mean, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's not like in, you know, like the basic entries in, in, you know, Elvish beginner encyclopedias and that kind of thing. Um, but might Bilbo have come across, uh, some reference to it? Not obviously to the stuff that Gandalf had to learn, uh, you know, from that note that he found written in the hand of Isildur, right? I'm not talking about that. Um, uh, about the fate, you know, what happened to the One Ring. But um, might he have come across the Ring rhyme before? The One Ring to rule them all rhyme? Um, and could he not possibly come to a shrewd guess based on that? What he probably has gotten out of Glowen, right? Uh, he probably has gotten Glowen to tell him what Glowen came to Rivendell to tell Bilbo, right? About uh, what the messenger of Mordor said at the gates of Erebor. Um, he knows that the Nazgul are out after Frodo. It's, but again, there's no reason to think that he put all of that together before, but now? Possibly? Possibly? Um, in any case, whether or not he figured that particular piece out or not, um, he certainly now has a, an, an intuitive understanding of what exactly the ring's power does. I understand. Put it away, he says, right? And so I agree uh, with Arnthrow that when he says, I'm sorry for everything, he is saying this with much... So, and, and I love that way of saying it, that this is, 
this is where the Hobbit, the book, the Hobbit gets or begins its true conclusion, right? Remember Bilbo's, Bilbo has had for a long time an idea about how that book should end, right? Um, and they all lived happily after till the end of his days, and those were extraordinarily long, right? I mean, this is how he's always wanted uh, his book to end. Um, he wa- He has wanted his book to have literally um literally a uh, uh a fairy tale ending right and they and they lived happily ever after um that ending is no worse for having been used before right um despite the fact that you've heard lots of stories that end that way still a very good ending right um so yeah i i, I think um uh that that's um thinking about this as the beginning of the real ending of the hobbit i think is fascinating because he's going to have to abandon the ending to his book cuz it's not going to be like that not even for him is it going to be like that exactly right it's not going to be quite as simple as that um and i and i think we can kind of begin to see why right the this desire to just be like and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days is like a desire to, I mean, there's, there's a distancing of the, of the real world there, right? That's, that's an ending which is out of touch with reality. Like real stories don't actually end like that usually, right? There's more, there's, there's, there's always more uh, to a story than that. Exactly. Finn, as Sam says, the story never really ends. Exactly. Um, Sam is going to get this insight later on. Uh, and remember, Finn, of course, Sam has absorbed a lot of his own literary sensibilities from Bilbo, right? Sam has a clear sense of what a good ending, right? Books ought to have good endings, as Bilbo is going to say to Frodo. Um, and Sam has clearly very similar ideas, I get doubtless drawn from Bilbo himself, about what constitutes a good ending of a book. But although that might be a good ending of a book, a good ending of a story, that's not what real stories are like. Real stories don't ever end, as Sam is going to see. And Bilbo, I think, now sees that too, right? Don't stories ever have an end, he says uh, to Frodo. Um, he, um, he definitely now sees that. So, yes, yeah, so this is the beginning of the end of The Hobbit, which is to say it doesn't exactly have an end, right? Now, Bilbo's story is going to have an end. His part in the story is going to come to an end. Um, but this is this is not a tragedy for Bilbo, right? To have to abandon the fairy tale ending that he'd been kind of clinging to, again, with a combination of, um, you know, of cluelessness and cunning, right? Um, cunning in the sense of some active denial there, right? Um, so, yeah, he's, he's, he's going to have to abandon that. Um, but the ending of his part is not going to be any the worse for that, right? And this is definitely, this is definitely wisdom, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder. Lalith asks, could it be that this is a reflection of Tolkien's realization of how big this book was becoming at this point in writing The Lord of the Rings? Um, it felt sort of endless where there had once been an ending, um, possibly, possibly. Uh, well, I guess there are two things, Lilith, I would say about that. First, 
as far as the Lord of the Rings itself is concerned, I think that if he were if he were to begin to feel despair, it wouldn't be happening yet, right? Um, when he got to this point in the writing, you know, in the drafting of the Lord of the Rings, uh, well, the first time he got to this point, like three or four different times, going back and starting again and writing, although, you know, so the, the Shire to, to Rivendell part of the Lord of the Rings is the one that got rewritten most. Um, but, uh, but anyway, uh, it is true that he thought when he got to Rivendell, he thought he was halfway through the story. First half of the story was, you know, bag end to Rivendell. Second half of the story is Rivendell to Mordor, right? You know, that's, um, uh, that's the, the, what he thought it was going to be. Uh, so Lilith, it certainly is true that he was not, you know, the story, the ending of the story kept kind of eluding him, right? And was nowhere near as close as he thought it would be. And we see this happening a bunch of times, right? As he gets to, um, you know, the, like Sam and Frodo are like in the Emin Muil and he's like, yeah, I'd like two, three chapters and that'll wrap up the thing, right? You know, it's, there are a number of places where he says that and it's just as exactly as adorable as those times for you know, those of you who have caught up on this class recently. I will remember me talking about how many classes it was going to be or the dates of when we were going to get certain places right back in the first 30 classes or so. Um, yeah, anyway, so... Um, uh, so that was certainly true, Lilith, on that on, in that sense. But but he wasn't quite there yet, right? Um, that is, it's not until after he leaves Rivendell and tries to start that second leg of the journey, right, from Rivendell down to Mount Doom, that things get. I mean, when he left Rivendell, right, when the when the when the when the Fellowship leaves Rivendell, he did not. Lothlorien didn't exist. Rohan didn't exist, right. Treebeard functionally didn't exist. So, I mean, all of these things, like, those are all things that he discovered along the way. And as he's discovering them, they're growing and growing and growing and growing. So, um, uh, so exactly, Galandar, the whole uh, sweep of the Gondor story was barely there. Yeah, it was not a Return of the King story yet. That was not even on the table. Um, Strider wasn't even a character. He wasn't even human yet. He was still a hobbit. So, anyway, yeah, it's um, all of that stuff he discovers along the way. So, again... Like my point is, at this point in writing The Lord of the Rings, he's not yet there, right? That is, the ending is much further away than he thinks, but he doesn't know it yet, right? But the second, here's the, the second thing that I would say. Uh, the second thing that I would say is, although he's not there yet, uh, he's not at that particular moment of frustration with The Lord of the Rings yet, he is, um, uh, he is way... Uh, He's had this experience a lot of times in the bigger picture, right? And not only spiritual cushions, absolutely, uh, when he's abandoning the Ariel saga and do the Atlantis story, though that's one example, right? I mean, his story was over at what will later be called the end of the First Age, right? The War of Wrath was the end of the story. I mean, that was like virtual Armageddon. Right. Not exactly, because the world went on anyway and became the world of humans. But that was that was that was the end of the tales. Right. Um, His the story that he had to tell. Right. This story which was in him that he was getting out and everything. It was the story of the elves, you know, from the beginning through the War of Wrath. That was it. And except then he discovered that that's not the end of the story. Right. There's this like there's the Atlantis story. 
right? There's this sequel thing, the, the Numenorean story that then grew and, and took shape, right? And then, of course, the Lord of the Rings sort of grew into it. So Lilith, that's the one thing that has happened by now, right? By now, he has already had that moment with, you know, when Trotter, as he was called at first, when Trotter first says, I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel, right? That's the moment where the floodgates open and the Silmarillion world and the world of this story, the Lord of the Rings, come together and become the same world. And this becomes a further, a yet further chapter of that longer story, right? So in that sense, Lilith, certainly he has had many times now this experience of, I thought the story was over, but it turns out there's so much more of it. Right. Um, so certainly he has already had, has been having um, uh, this experience of um, uh, discovering that tales don't really have an end where you think they're going to. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the Dagor Dagoroth is, is Armageddon Lincoln indeed. But again, there's only kind of a misty... Uh, like from the Elvish point of view, like between the War of Wrath and the Dagor Dagoroth is, you know, it might be a very long period of time, but it's it's essentially like the next chapter, right? Um. Anyway, um. Okay, so anyway, so thank you. Um. Uh. Now, Belongsman, did you say that Arnthrow was you? Arnthrow is your name on the on the uh, uh, the the discussion board. In which case, thank you for your comment. That was that was uh, that was really good. Okay, let's go back to the text. So we've just had the moment from Bilbo. Frodo hid the ring away, and the shadow passed, leaving hardly a shred of memory. The light and music of Rivendell was about him again. Bilbo smiled and laughed happily. Every item of news from the Shire that Frodo could tell, aided and corrected now and again by Sam, was of the greatest important, with the greatest interest to him, from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in Hobbiton. They were so deep in the doings of the Four Farthings that they did not notice the arrival of a man clad in dark green cloth. For many minutes he stood looking down at them with a smile. Suddenly Bilbo looked up. "'Ah, there you are at last, Dunedon,' he cried. Okay. Um, yeah, cool. Okay, so, yes, good. Uh, Simon, I wanted to talk about that first sentence first. Frodo hid the ring away, and the shadow passed, leaving hardly a shred of memory. The shadow that arose between him and, uh, and Bilbo, right? The shadow through which he was looking at Bilbo, right, um, and where, which induced him to feel differently, right, to see Bilbo differently and to feel differently about Bilbo. Um, but the thing that I would primarily emphasize here is the latter part, leaving hardly a shred of memory. Frodo, again, this moment that we just had, that we talked about last week, this was Bilbo's realization, not Frodo's realization. And it's not Bilbo 
who is demonstrating corruption from the ring. It's Frodo. Now, again, is the question, you know, the desire to see it corruption? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's not, Bilbo isn't transforming into uh, a a bony creature with grasping hands that, uh, you know, that Frodo wants to strike. It's Frodo that's changing there. It's Frodo who is seeing the shadow. And Frodo who becomes almost oblivious, right? Leaving hardly a shred of memory. In retrospect, it seems that Frodo can remember this. Is this possibly, you know, again, if we think back to the the composition of the text question, which we often come back to, uh, is Frodo being assisted here, possibly even by Bilbo himself, perhaps by Sam, who does seem to have been right there the whole time? Um, so, um, so, yeah, I think that uh, he, uh, he certainly... Uh, seems to remember it now, but it's interesting that he comments that it le- that it left hardly a shred of memory, right? At least at the time. Um, and again, what that reminds me of is Bilbo's previous state, like the time the 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 state of mind that Bilbo was in up through like you know three minutes ago uh, in his time, right? Uh, because that cluelessness and cunning thing, right, that Bilbo has been doing literally for decades, right? Um, Frodo is beginning, right, has already begun, uh, and of course is going to become more and more deeply mired um, uh, in that. Um, So um, anyway, so that I think is really interesting, that we can see, though Bilbo has woken up to recognition, Frodo has not. Um, Frodo doesn't really seem to take anything away from this. Notice that Frodo, there's no evidence that Frodo's learned anything, right? That Frodo has come to any acknowledgement of learned something about himself, learned anything about the ring. He doesn't seem to have, right? Of course, uh, Bilbo has. Um, The light and music of Rivendell was about him again. Again, this is the thing that to me confirms the fact, you know, the sentence before that says that a silence seemed to fall around them, um, is open to different interpretations, right? It is possible to read that, that there's a literal silence, that there's something actually breaks the music of Rivendell, um, and the room falls awkwardly silent at that particular, or coincidentally silent, happening to be between songs or something like that. I really don't think so. Um, I think that that is just describing Frodo's perspective. He's no longer aware of the, the music and the sounds of merriment, uh, around them. Um, but uh, but now, all of a sudden, so the sudden resumption uh, of the uh, light and music of Rivendell is what suggests to me that his sort of tunnel vision, his obliviousness to all of the happiness uh, and fellowship around them um, is a result of that shadow, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly, Finn. It is, I, I, I think it's exactly it. Frodo's own point of view, like he was taken out of time, is exactly, I think, what, uh, uh, what, is, being, what is being described there. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, and one of the things I like about that sentence, though, notice how objective that description is it doesn't say frodo hid the ring away um he suddenly heard 
and saw the light and music again, right? Again, it's not about him. It's about the light and music. The light and music of Rivendell was all about him again. Well, it had been the whole time, right? Um, but again, you you notice that almost the like how the observation is is sort of flipped there, right? Um, what has really happened is Frodo suddenly became aware that the light and music of Rivendell was about him, right? But that's not how it's it's phrased. Almost as if from within Frodo's perspective, it really has started up again, like as if it really did stop, which again, suggest it, it conveys this idea of, um, you know, Frodo's own sort of sheltered world, right? Um, which is important, I think. Again, we're getting a glimpse here into the state that Frodo, you know, remains in. Um, uh, he's not, he's not had a realization. He's not had a breakthrough, uh, uh, like Bilbo has. Um, and again, I think we can see a few hints here, um, about that. Okay. Um, now Bilbo and his desire for news from the Shire. Um, there are two, there are a couple different possibilities here, right? Um, one, I'd say, oh, sorry, I, I missed this kind of, wanted to comment on this before. Matt had been saying that uh, this scene is the first time Bilbo has been tempted by the One Ring after he willingly gave it up. Perhaps his having walked away from it is what lets him understand. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, he has a different perspective. I mean, this is one of the, one of the ways in which Bilbo is um, unique. Right, and we're told Gandalf says he's the only person who has ever willingly given it up. Right, um, once somebody took me to task in saying that and, and said, "Oh, well, Isildur gave it up too. At least he, he intended to, according to Unfinished Tales." Right, but remember, even in Unfinished Tales, there's a difference, as Gandalf says, between merely playing with the idea of giving it up and actually giving it up. Right, push had not yet come to shove with Isildur. He had not yet handed it over. Uh, maybe he would have done, maybe he wouldn't have done. But even in the revised version, even in the, the Disaster of the Gladden Fields version uh, of the Isildur story with the ring, we he never does it, right? So Bilbo remains unique as the one who gave it up. And so Matt, maybe that is one of the consequences of it, having given it up. Um, he can now sort of see it from the outside. He's enabled to have this kind of vision. Gollum certainly never really gets that true insight into what the ring is and what the ring has done to him, right? There are things that Gollum understands, but he never has this kind of insight uh, that Bilbo gets, I think. Um, Good. Galandar, your comment was the other one I was looking back for. He says, I'm a bit surprised at Bilbo's intense level of interest in the Shire events at this point. He left 17 years ago without really looking back. Is there some homesickness here, or is he exaggerating his interest a bit to smooth over the shadow that just passed? Um, my guess would be both. On the one hand, does Bilbo have some kind of instinctive idea that there's power of another sort in the Shire that, like, from a sort of therapeutic perspective, getting Frodo to talk about the Shire is a good move right now. Um, 
maybe he understands this, maybe he doesn't understand this. Not really sure. Belongsbottom is just think, uh, thinking um, similar kinds of things there. Yeah. So maybe instinctually he gets, you know, he just sort of feels the fact that as he's looking around for uh, a place to shift the conversation to, right? Uh, having really, you know, uh, dropped a bomb there with the uh, whole can I see the ring thing and realizing that he's mucked everything up uh, and realizing, of course, much more than that. He feels the onus on him to find a safer topic of conversation that's going to uh, help Frodo, right? So perhaps on some instinctive level, he feels that the Shire would be a safe thing to talk about. Um, I, that seems to me perfectly fine. But um, but at the same time, I don't see any reason to think that Bilbo's not going to have specific interest. Did he want to leave the Shire? Yes. Uh, is he kind of done with the Shire in a sense? In a sense, yeah. I mean, he was... Um, remember the contrast with Frodo, where Frodo is not... Um, at the end of chapter one, um, F- Bilbo tells Gandalf that Frodo had offered to come with him, to leave the Shire with him, right? And Bilbo says, yeah, but he, he, he doesn't really want to yet, right? He's still in love with, you know, woods and... Uh, woods and valleys and little rivers, right? That he's still, you know, so Bilbo does suggest from that there's something different in his relationship with the Shire, that he's, you know, uh, over it, you know, that he's that he's not attached to it in the same way or in the same, with the same quality of attachment, um, the same nature of, you know, the same kind of attachment uh, that uh, that Frodo still has. Um but I don't think that this means that he like has antipathy to the Shire now, right? That he's sick of the Shire and doesn't want to hear about it anymore. Um, and a couple of you are recalling Bilbo's constant remembering of the, he does still have his Baggins side, right? Uh, that the token Baggins divide within him was very strong in one of the central motifs of the Hobbit. Um, and it's not totally gone. Right. I mean, there is a way in which him being swept off his feet at last by the road at the end of chapter one uh, is like his took side finally winning. He's going to retire a took. Right. Um, and give up the Baggins side entirely, having essentially indulged his Baggins side for 60 years ever since he came back from his journey. Right. Uh, but I, I, he's not lost it completely. Um yeah. Um, and yes, uh, Morna, when I agree with you, uh, just living in Rivendell for this time has likely made him crave a return to little things, right? Um, I think he's going to appreciate that more. Um, Evil Dr. Cannon is wondering how much Bilbo's r- restlessness to leave was caused by the ring. Now that the ring is gone, maybe he is more interested in the Shire. Sure. Yeah, I mean, when he was delighted to be off again, off on the road with dwarves, right? When he was being swept off his feet and, um, uh, and he was happier than he's ever been in his life. And that's saying a good deal, right? All that, the, the elation of Bilbo at the end, is this because he's, he's so happy to, uh, you know, be rid of the Shire and go off on the road to some extent? Yeah. I mean, I do, I think that he's indulging the took side that has been a little underindulged, uh, over the last 60 years? Sure, I, I think that. But Evil Dr. Cannon, I think you're quite right to say that what we're seeing in part there 
is him experiencing something which he is not processing fully, right? Or not processing um, correctly, perhaps, right? Um, that the relief that he feels, the joy that he feels, um, the that sense of 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 release, right? Um, of freedom when he's off again, off on the road with dwarves, is at least in part his freedom from the ring. Um, he doesn't know that. He doesn't get that. He doesn't know how to interpret that. Um, so I, I do think that that's a really important thing uh, that's going on there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Irindus points out that he's been waiting all these years to hear how his joke gifts went over after the party. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, um, doubtless hoping for some payoff, right. On the jokes that he left behind. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. JJ, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, JJ says the Took side won out in the Hobbit too, and then got tired. I expect after a brief rest, the Baggins side would grow stronger again. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good, good. So, um, so anyway, yeah. So I think that he's genuinely interested. Um, all these things are of the greatest interest to him. Um, from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in Hobbiton. Um, what has changed? What's been happening? And his introduction to this, what we saw on the previous slide last time, remember what he calls all this. He calls this real news, right? Let's have some real news. Um, and of course, on, on the surface, this seems like the opposite of that. Right. I mean, here you're fine, you know, uh, especially contrasted. Aragorn has not been there because he's been getting real news. Right. Um, and uh, but so is Bilbo here of a very different kind. Right. So what trees have been cut down? What pranks are the Hobbiton children playing these days? Right. These are things that um, are of the greatest interest to Bilbo that he is characterizing as real news. And of course, it's funny because on the one, I'm, I'm, I am tempted to say, on the one hand, this sort of shows how much, so things change a lot. I mean, Bilbo has been away from the Shire for 17 years. Well, I can relate. Um, you know, I, I'm living here in New Hampshire, one town over from the town that I lived in throughout my middle school and high school years. Um, and then I moved away. I moved away for 22 years, actually, and then moved back after 22 years into this same area. And I'm now like, you know, shopping at the same grocery store that my mom shopped at, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And it's weird in a lot of ways, but a lot has changed. I mean, a lot has, and I'm constantly like, wow, you know, I'm constantly, you know, at least for the first few years, I was constantly, you know, boring my ch children by being like, well, back in my day, this was an open field, this strip mall. And, you know, I mean, that's all that, you know, I, I was doing that all the time, right? The pace of life in the Shire is different. 
it's not going to change in the same way, right? You're not going to go back to your hometown after 17 years and it's going to be barely recognizable. And, you know, you'll like the buildings that are still unchanged are going to be the exception to the rules, right? Which is, again, what I found when I came back here after 22 years. Um, but, um, uh, uh, but anyway, that's, um, that's definitely, uh, it's different in the Shire, right? Things, do, you know, so news, what is new in the Shire? Well, not that much, actually, right? Not much will have changed. Um, but then again, so, but my first impression, my first impulse was to say that, but then I paused and said, but, but you know what? I bet you that things in the Shire have changed a good deal more than they've changed around Rivendell in the last 17 years, right? Uh, compared to compared to the elves among whom he's living, uh, you know, uh, life in the Hobbiton is doubtless, you know, changing around in a whirlwind pace. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, 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 I do think that... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do think that that's, um, uh, definitely an interesting thing, right? That in, 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 there is a way in which when he says real news, what he's looking for is in news from home, news about things that he remembers about and cares about, uh, let's discuss things that are going to kind of like gratify my bag inside. They're going to satisfy my bag inside. Um, but also like he's in this little oasis, this virtually timeless oasis, right? Which is lovely in lots and lots of ways. Um, but there's not much, I mean, what's the latest news from Rivendell? <laughs> Seriously, like what happens there? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, whereas again, things that, you know, Lincoln, exactly as you say, like, rem, don't you remember, like, the, you know, like who's grown up and married to whom and everything in 17 years? Like, yeah, I, seriously, does that happen in Rivendell? <laughs> like, has there been any change to in anybody's, has anybody changed their Facebook status in Rivendell in the last 17 years? I mean, it just, um, it's, uh, that's not the way things go. So, so it's interesting, you know, compared to our modern world, you know, the Shire is not going to be very greatly changing. Um, of course it is gonna down the road, right. In the scouring of the Shire, but, um, or, you know, you know, in order for the shower, the Shire to need scouring. Um, but, um, uh, but in any case, yeah, it's, um, it's not, um, so it's, it's you know compared to our modern world, it's very delightfully, comfortably static. Um, but compared to Rivendell, it's going to be swift moving. Um, I am sure that Bilbo is probably going to want to hear what mischief the Sackville Bagginses are doing. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, thinking about, um, I mean, Otho's dead. That's news. Right, uh, Otho Sackville Baggins died, and Lotho uh, uh, took over. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, Ambrosius, Aureliana. I bet you that there are some of those elves still cooking bannocks and singing tra la 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 over by the river. Like it's not that they're doing it again; they're doing it still. Right? I mean, that's absolutely. 
uh, uh, absolutely. Um, yes. And I do think that there is much comedy that could be gotten out of Elvish Facebook statuses. Of course, there are many, you know, I've seen many, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, you know, uh, Twitter accounts and stuff like, uh, you know, as uh, uh, particular characters or whatever. Um, but most of those are, of course, very different, right? It's like the deliberate, usually it's like the deliberate juxtaposition of, you know, the Tolkien character with the modern world and that kind of thing. And there's there's definitely humor there, and some of those accounts are really funny. Um, but that's not the kind of thing that I'm talking about, right? Imagining, like, uh, you know, uh, what an actual Tolkien elf within Tolkien's world would <laughs> Would do like what would Galadriel actually post if Galadriel within her world, you know, had access to social media? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but um, there's there's definitely much that could be done with that. I think. Okay. Um, then of course we have the man in dark green cloth showing up, um, standing and looking down at them with a smile. Um, we'll get back to him, but storied past, I promised that I would talk about, um, I promised that I'd talk about Sam. Let's talk about Sam. The question is, where was Sam during that previous exchange? during Frodo's peril, where was Sam? Especially if we are suggesting, as I was suggesting, that Sam serves as a kind of chaperone, right? At the very least, Sam would have been there with Bilbo and Frodo as far as the prevent making sure that uh, nothing untoward in the temptation direction happens uh, to poor old Mr. Bilbo, uh, while he's there. Let's not leave him alone in the room with the unconscious ring bearer in the ring right there. Conversation that we had before. Um, but anyway, so why isn't Sam, why doesn't Sam sound the alarm or uh, do something uh, when Frodo pulls out the ring and Bilbo puts out his hand? Shouldn't he have some kind of understanding that this is not right? Well, here's the problem. The problem is, this is told from Frodo's point of view. And we remember what Frodo's point of view is during this time, right? From the time he pulls out the ring to the time when he puts it back away again, he's in this bubble, right? He can't see or hear the room around him. He is totally unaware of what's going on. This means um, we have no idea, really, what Sam was doing during that time. Um, it is possible. I'm not saying I think this is true. It is possible. I think it is consistent with what we have in the text that Sam might have been saying something or trying to say something, right? Sam could totally have been there saying, uh, 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 Mr. Frodo, uh, is, are you sure this is a good idea? Um, uh, you know, I mean, like he could have been attempting to intervene. He doesn't step in physically, right? Um, but I don't think... Yeah, Finn is imagining Sam reaching out saying, no, yeah, something like that. Could totally, um, could totally be happening, 
right? Um, so, so again, one thing, the mere absence of reference to Sam doing anything or saying anything or reacting in a particular way does not seem to me evidence that we have any idea what Sam was actually doing or what Sam was actually thinking. Cause what we do know is that Frodo, like it was him, Bilbo and the ring, and there was nothing else in the world, right? Sam might've been doing jumping jacks or standing on his head for all we know, all Frodo would have known. Right. Um, so again, the mere fact that we're not told that Sam does anything is not to me evidence at all that he was actually doing nothing. But here's the other thing. Um, how alarmed would Sam have been? Because there are two other factors here to me. One is, remember, everything that happens, happens both very quickly and it's very immaterial, right? The whole shadow thing and changed in the, you know, the change in the apparent, uh, you know, the outward appearance of Bilbo, that's all in Frodo's head. No one else is seeing that, right? Um, so what's to notice? Bilbo notices, because he's looking at Frodo's face right then, right? And so he, I think he sees the expression that comes on. Again, it's Frodo's face that changes. It's not Bilbo's face that changes, right? He sees the expression, the wariness, the revulsion, right, that comes on, on Frodo's face, the, the, the deep unwillingness to hand over the ring, right? Bilbo recognizes it, and it leads to his larger moment of recognition there, of, of acknowledgement of the truth. Does Sam see that? Does Sam even see it? I mean, he'd have to be looking at Frodo's face at exactly that right moment, and I'm not sure he necessarily would be, right? It would be an easy thing to miss. Um, I mean, I can't imagine that it, uh, Edith Aldor, I'm not even sure it would last 60 seconds. Right? I think it'd be substantially less than that. Um, uh, yeah, well, see, but evil Dr. Cannon, I don't know. I mean, even Dr. Cannon says, I can't imagine that Sam wouldn't notice that Frodo looks like he's going to strike Bilbo. If he actually made to strike him, sure. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if Frodo hauls back and gets, yeah, yeah, Sam would have noticed that. But again, that's not what happens. Um, the two of them are talking. Is he looking at them? Probably. Is that guaranteed? No. I mean, is there a reason why Sam should be particularly vigilant at this moment? Right? I mean, they're reasonably safe here. Um, they're surrounded by the elves of Rivendell. Gandalf and Glorfindel and Elrond are in the room, right? So, I mean, you know, Sam is, is, is very, uh, you know, attentive uh, to his master, but seriously, there's not that much to be alarmed about. Um, he's doubtless pleased, and yeah, he is surrounded by elves and distracted, uh, absolutely. That seems very plausible. Um, and not just elves, mind, Right? Um, the singing, right? It's the singing that goes to your heart. I mean, this is Sam in the Hall of Fire. Uh, this moment. Now, like, yes, it's true that the reunion of Frodo and Bilbo is a big moment, which I'm sure Sam appreciated at least as much as anybody else in the room, right? Um, but is it possible that his attention has wandered a little bit? Because let's not forget, as cool as the reunion of Bilbo and Frodo must have been for Sam, 
this is like the fulfillment of his life's dream, right? This is Mr. I, you know, memorized all the poems that old Mr. Bilbo taught me about the elves. Um, the guy who loves songs and stories and poems and elves. And here he is in the Hall of Fire, surrounded by the music and song and poetry of elves like he's never heard before. He heard the elves singing in Woodall. That was really cool, right? But that can't be anything like this, right? So is Sam 100% vigilant? Is he right there studying their faces the whole time? Not. And again, this happens pretty quickly. All he'd have to do is be looking over and listening to an elf song. And again, he's not like a scuffle doesn't break out or anything. I mean, he's not. And remember, uh, Bilbo leans in and whispers, if, asking if he can have a look at it. I don't, I don't think Sam hears it. In fact, one might even think that he uh, leans in to Frodo in order to prevent Sam hearing it. Um, that seems quite likely. Uh, so, um, yeah, Belongsmond, you're absolutely right. When Frodo does start paying attention to the music, we're going to see what happens to him making it all the more likely that something similar is already happening to Sam right now. So, yeah, no, uh, I think there's all kinds of reasons to suspect that Sam, howsoever diligent and faithful he might be, is not at his maximally vigilant at this moment, and there's no reason for him to be. So could he have missed this exchange? Yes. Again, I suspect that Bilbo was trying to keep this exchange from Sam, among others, right? Um, so... um yeah, Tiber says, didn't they kind of take Sam off the case when they told him he could not serve uh, at the at the feast, right? Yeah, I mean, he is sort of officially off-duty, right, uh, in this way. And I agree with Belongsman, he's never actually off the case, right? He's never totally ceasing to serve his master, but still. Um, so, so anyway, I, I certainly don't think that, um, uh, that Sam is... Um, uh, it's very understandable if Sam is not. I I don't have any problem believing that Sam basically isn't even aware that this exchange is happening. There's little enough outwardly going on. It's brief enough that I don't think there's any compelling reason to believe that he was aware of it. Though, as I said, he also um, um, he also might have been aware. Might have been saying something and then and Frodo was unaware of it. Frodo didn't hear it. Right, because he was oblivious to what Sam was doing and saying. And then, of course, things resume. And Frodo puts the ring away, and Bilbo's like, hey, let's talk about the Shire. So, aided and corrected now and again by Sam, Sam is uh, uh, enthusiastically contributing to this conversation, right? Um, so, it is very possible uh, that if, so imagine if Sam had been saying, uh, Mr. Frodo, uh, are you sure about this? What's going on, Mr. Frodo? And Frodo was oblivious to it, that this is the first thing from Sam that he would hear that seeing the way that things are going and that things seem to be okay. Now he'd be like, yeah, okay, let's talk about the Shire. I, I think that's consistent. I think that could totally be made to work again. I don't think that that was what it was actually happening, but I don't think it's, um, uh, it's uh, it's ruled out. And now, Karita, that's the third thing that I would say about Sam. Um, Karita says, also, it's polite for Sam to not try too hard to overhear a clearly private exchange between 
Master Frodo and Mr. Bilbo. Absolutely. Um, we have to remember that Sam, Sam knows his place, right? Imagine, I mean, when we say, if we were to say, why didn't Sam do something? What was he meant to do? What would he have done? What's plausible for him to do? Is he going to intervene? Right? Is like Frodo going to be about to hand the ring over to Bilbo and Bilbo's reaching out for it and Sam is like, no! And he jumps in. And no, he's not going to act like that. He wouldn't, towards either one of them, he would defer to both of them. Right? Maybe he would say, you know, maybe he would speak up and say, uh, uh, Mr. Frodo, are you sure about this? But but yeah, so I don't. I think it would take a lot for Sam to like put himself forward in that way. I don't think he would do it. Um, uh, his faith in Frodo, I think, is too strong for that. And again, he's not gonna. He's not gonna put himself forward, right? To use his phrase. Um. Uh, so and uh, Karita, exactly as you said, Bilbo lowering his voice and leaning in and whispering to Frodo, Sam's reaction to that is not going to be, you know, leaning in and trying to hear. When he sees Bilbo acting like that, he's probably going to be leaning away and looking away. Even if he did happen to be paying attention at that moment, I think he's going to do the polite thing and deliberately not pay attention to that conversation. That seems to me exactly right, exactly like the kind of thing. Uh, that Sam would probably do. He's not a spy anymore, right? Probably, probably nobody is 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 uh, has secured his services uh, as a spy on Mister Frodo here. Um, but um, now, storied past, I do agree that this was a fraught moment and potentially dangerous. Um, well, I would say potentially dangerous, yes, mostly for Bilbo and for Frodo in part. Um, it's weird that no one looked after them or noticed. Again, we don't know that nobody noticed. We just know that nobody intervened. And you think about it. This kind of exchange is almost inevitable, right? I mean, the only way to ensure that there was never a tense moment between Bilbo and Frodo about the ring would be to never let them meet again at all, right? Let's make sure that Bilbo is never in the same room as the ring ever again as long as he lives, would literally be the only way to guarantee that a scene like this wasn't going to happen, right? And whether or not, they, I mean, they clearly did not make that call, right? They clearly did not just try to keep Bilbo separate. You know, they, as Frodo was approaching, they weren't like, well, Bilbo, time to go to Erebor again. We're shipping you off, right? I mean, they, they didn't do that. Um, so we, um, so again, this was always going to be a potential issue. Right. And it's not shocking that it happens in the first conversation that they have when they meet again. Right. This brings me back to the observations we were making before about how um, Elrond seems to be in on the surprise that they're springing for to for Frodo. Right. Um, Think about this from Elrond and Gandalf's point of view. If they know that the meeting of Bilbo and Frodo is almost certain to be risky, right? This is almost certain to happen, or at least there's a, there's a certain chance that this is going to uh, go down and possibly get ugly, right? There could be, um, there could be striking involved, <laughs> or, or worse, right? Um, 
So knowing that's going to be the case, where would be where would you choose to have this happen? Yeah, Belongs Bond, I'm thinking the same thing. Um, the Hall of Fire seems like just about the ideal possible place. <laughs> the HOF would be a good place to stage the meeting. Cooperstown? Yeah, I agree. No, exactly. The Hall of Fire seems like literally the best possible place that this could be happening, right? Let's contrive uh, so that Bilbo and Frodo's first meeting, where this is most likely to happen, will happen, A, in a crowded room, right? Surrounded by really powerful people who are able to take care of things, right? B, in this place which is, like, full of all of the, like, most positive things, right? Where there will be elvish singing and enchantment and and uh, all of the things that are most... Contra- I mean, like, look, Strider singing the song of Tenuvial around the campfire is like a, you know, ranks pretty low on the spiritual Richter scale compared to sitting in the middle of the Hall of Fire, right? And hearing, like, the Noldor singing in Quenya for crying out loud, right? So, um, so again, in that way, I, ideal environment uh, to uh, expose them, right, and, and see if we can solve this. Third, they're right there. Elrond and Gandalf are right there, right? We, have, we do not know that they're not watching. Um, if, I were, um, um, if I were staging this, right, when we get to this in film film, here's how I would want to do this. I would like to have to show that on screen, right? I wouldn't do the Frodo's perspective on this. That's what the narrative gives us, is Frodo's perspective, right? Um, I'm not sure how I would want to play Sam if I would make him aware and concerned and see him struggling with, like, should I say something or is that not okay? That's one impulse I would have. The other would just be Sam, like, wrapped by the music and, and uh, you know, Bilbo choosing that. Maybe Bilbo looks over and sees Sam distracted and then leans into Frodo, right? That would be another way I'd be tempted to do it. But with Gandalf and, and, and Elrond, I'm having them sitting, like, near each other, right? And, uh, like, and they're, they're both of them, like, like, you know, leaning in towards each other, talking, and then they're looking, they're both watching Bilbo and Frodo as this happens, right? Um and, uh, like, sort of waiting, like, do we need to do anything? Is this going to be okay? And then they watch, and they see what Bilbo does, and they're like, oh, okay. All right, we're all good. We're all good. Um, but, um, anyway, so that's, um, I, I, it's very, very possible. that that I don't see any reason to think that that wouldn't have been happening. Again, I cannot think of a better controlled environment in which to stage this and stage it is precisely what Elrond seems to have done, right? Apart from contriving to ensure that Bilbo was not at the feast, right? Um, it does seem almost as if Gandalf has contrived this. I wonder, again, this is, um, this is the other thing that I would do if I were, if I were filming this. I would have Gandalf propose it to Bilbo, right? Um, you know, I, I have a conversation between Gandalf and Bilbo where, uh, you know, Gandalf tells Bilbo that Frodo should be awake and would be coming down to the feast. And have Bilbo be something like, excellent, I, I, you know, I'll meet him in his room when he wakes up and I'll bring him to the feast. Uh, and have Gandalf say, actually, I have a better idea, right? Um, why don't you give him a little surprise, right? That'll be even better. Um, and 
you know, and Bilbo agrees that it would be really fun to surprise Frodo um, and not to distract from, you know, the feast and everything. Um, it seems very Bilbo. Um, uh, I mean, even Frodo seems to have absorbed some of that spirit. Remember the, the first time they ditched off the road when they heard the horse hooves coming, which turned out to be the Black Rider, much to everybody's surprise, including Tolkien's. Um, they were just, they thought it was Gandalf and they were getting out of sight in order to give him a surprise to pay him out for being late, right? So that kind of thinking is very natural. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Bruiner said, we were asking uh, who was responsible for Bilbo waiting in the Hall of Fire. We decided then that it was Bilbo, but it seems to be Gandalf. At least again, that would be my idea, right? Um, uh, but it, 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 anyway, so whether it comes from Bilbo and Gandalf is like, this is a brilliant idea. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, like I said, there are different ways that we could play this, but when you back up and think about it, however it came to be, this is, I get like optimal circumstances, literally nothing too bad can happen here right um and not only is there you know i mean there are how many people in the room could positively intervene right has the ability to step in and prevent anything horrible from happening uh if it looks like there's going to be an issue right with bilbo and the ring lots of people right uh could intervene there um but also with the atmosphere of the room and the song and everything, you know, and, the, and stories and everything else, it's got to be less likely to happen there than anywhere else. And I agree with the point, I forget who was making that a little while back, um, that, um, uh, yes, uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus, um, the fact that this happens privately in Bilbo's room in the movie, like, that's a bad call, right? Um, uh, that, that would be, that would be risky. That would be risky. Um, but, um, yeah, anyhow, um, story pass, I don't know exactly how you intervene, but again, here's my other question though. What's the other option? What option do they have? They can't prevent the risk unless they're going to just say, Bilbo and Frodo must never meet. We must contrive that Bilbo and Frodo are never in the same room again, right? And they're, they don't make that call. They're not willing to do that. Um, and I think they're right not to do that. Um, this seems to me to be a worthwhile risk uh, for them to take. Um, and I, I just, I can't see them making that decision. Um, I think that based on their... It would be a gamble, but it's a gamble that I can easily see. Um, it's a gamble that I, that I, that I could easily see uh, Gandalf making, right? Okay, so it's Bilbo and Frodo, right? So, I mean, if, if there are two hobbits less likely to end up like Smeagol and Diagol, I don't know who they are, right? So relatively low risk there. Bilbo did give up the ring voluntarily, which means we have some good... He's our only data point, admittedly, but we have some, you know, uh, uh, good reasons to believe that the ring is going to retain less control over him than it would over somebody like Gollum, for instance. So 
Uh, that's another reason to believe it's probably going to be okay. I don't know exactly how um, ex- what we would do to intervene, but I mean, remember, there's all kinds of things they could do. Put them both to sleep, right? Uh, you know, put an enchanted sleep on the both of them would be an option, right? Um, I don't know, but um, uh, so Gandalf. You know, based on what he knows of ring lore, combined with what he knows of hobbit lore, combined with what he knows of these two particular hobbits, I can easily see Gandalf saying, okay, yeah, no, it's not worth doing what seems to me a genuinely shady thing, right? I mean, for them, because they'd have to lie to Bilbo. Um, They've been withholding information from Bilbo, but there's no reason to think they've been lying to him, right? But for them to say... If they tell Bilbo that they're not going to tell him the absolute truth, they're not going to spill the beans to Bilbo because uh, they have good reasons to not tell him stuff. So what are they going to do? Be like, so Bilbo, Frodo's coming. Be scared. Or are they going to just withhold that too and be like, I think anywhere else but here would be a good place for you right about now, Bilbo. I'm going to try to convince you that again. It just that whole project, you know, trying to keep Bilbo and Frodo uh, from meeting seems to me. Um, shady, frankly. Um, and what's more, the reunion, the way that the reunion of, with Bilbo, of course, is kind of the climax of this chapter, the many meetings chapter. Um, and you think about the way in which, in a big picture, this chapter has served as a kind of, not full reversal, but um, it's kind of writing the ship, Frodo's spiritual ship, I mean right after what he experienced in the last chapter with his, his, his little brush with wraithification right on the way to the Bruinen. Um, he, it, you know, the, the way that he's been reintegrated, right. Reintroduced to himself, reintroduced to, uh, uh, to Sam, reintroduced to his friends, reintroduced now to Bilbo. This is really the culminating moment of sort of regrounding him. So again, I think for Gandalf, it's like, could it go badly? Yep. But you know, there's also a chance actually that it will do Frodo the most good that we can possibly do him. So again, better to take the risk. And if you're going to take the risk, how better, you know, how better than in this, uh, situation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, storied past, I wonder if elves can see, uh, somebody who's wearing the ring. It's hard because of course the only real evidence we have of this comes from the Hobbit when which is really different. I mean, he retcons the Hobbit successfully, but, you know, the ring and the invisibility of the ring was a very different thing in the Hobbit. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. JJ's thinking that Glorfindel should be able to. You'd think so. You'd think so. Probably. Um... Yeah, I wouldn't think it would necessarily correlate with the elvish rings. But um but yeah, the Calaquendi seems very likely. It's right it's true crownless that the elves were aware when Sauron put on the ring. And by the way, I I, I always assume that meant the three wielders of the three. Um not like all elves everywhere were aware of him. Um but yeah, see, Bronir, again, and we know that the ring can make you successfully invisible to elves uh, in the halls of the Elven King. But again, uh, I'm a little reluctant to rely too heavily on the events of The Hobbit in this way. Um, 
that, though it is certainly true that as spiritual cushions points out, those are more equity. So, um, that would still fit within this, uh, within this thing. So yes, it's the ring wielders who are the ones who were aware, but it's not like they're seeing an invisible ring wearer. Sauron isn't in the room, right? Uh, I mean, he's hundreds of miles away. Um, what they're aware of is his influence, right? Um, his ring enables him to control, to perceive and to control. So it's like the channel that he opens with them as they are wearing the rings when he is wearing the ring of power is a bit of a two-way channel, right? They can tell that they're being spied upon, that they're being influenced, and they take off their rings right away. Um, so I don't think that necessarily has anything to do uh, with the question, would the ring wearer appear invisible? I mean, heck, I don't even think it's true that, that Sauron, I mean, Sauron, I don't think is invisible when he wears the ring. Um, no reason to think that Sauron becomes invisible. Um, I'm trying to think of any evidence that would imply that, and I can't think of any evidence that would imply that Sauron becomes invisible when he's wearing the ring. Um, I would not think that that's what the battle on the slopes of, uh, uh, you know, Mount Doom looked like, um, uh, you know, at the end of, uh, of the War of the Last Alliance. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, I, what exactly would have happened, what they might have done, I'm not really sure. I do think that there are various ways that they could have intervened safely. Again, like I said, enchantment very much in their power, right? Um, but um, anyway, so these are the reasons why I am not disturbed about the fact that like people seem to let this happen. Again, it had to happen sooner or later unless you're keeping them apart. No better time, no better place than here and now. So that seems like good management, not neglect. Um, and again, as for Sam, I think he was either not paying attention, understandably, in the Hall of Fire, or um, uh, or he was paying attention and was either A, being polite and not intervening yet, as he would be, or B, un was unaware of by Frodo. So, I mean, like, every scenario seems to me to fit perfectly well with what is described in the text, um, leaving us to imagine what Sam was actually up to there. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Sp spiritual Cushions is quoting the... Uh, uh, you know, Gandalf speaking about the elven wise lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas. They do not fear the ringwraiths. For those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm live at once in both worlds and against both the seen and the unseen, they have great power. Um, yeah, that, that doesn't state explicitly that they can see people when they're wearing the ring, but that the power against both the seen and the unseen living at both and once in both worlds, it certainly seems likely that Glorfindel would be able to see Frodo in some sense. My guess is that when Frodo is wearing the ring, again, if I were, if I were doing a visual adaptation of this from Glorfindel's point of view, I would show when Frodo is wearing the ring, I would have him look kind of like the ring wraiths looked to, to, uh, uh, to, so when Frodo puts on the ring and he sees the ring wraiths, right? Um, I would have Frodo look to Gorfindel kind of like the ring wraiths look to Frodo when he's wearing the ring. Not exactly the same. 
you know, with the mail and the swords and all that kind of thing. But I would, I, I would, I would have there be a definite similarity um, that what he's seeing is this wrong, like capital W wrong, wraith of a mortal, right? Uh, when Frodo is wearing the ring. Um, uh, anyway, but is he able to perceive him in some in some way or other? Yeah, I mean that that seems to me very very likely based on what we're told about the Caliquendi there and about you know the thinking in terms of the conclusions that we were drawing from that um, uh, later on. And of course, we know that Tom Bombadil can see him perfectly well, right? So uh, we certainly know that there is precedent for him being perceptible uh, to those who can see. Tom's not as blind as all that yet. Um, uh, anyway, obviously, Gorfindel, Tom Bombadil, in two different categories in several ways, right? But, uh, but again, we, we, still, we certainly have that uh, uh, as a direct precedent of somebody seeing him uh, when he's wearing the ring. All right. Um... I'm going to... Ooh, Mike is thinking about Gandalf, white and gray. Would Gandalf the white have been able to see him? You know, I, I wanted that might be part of the upgrade that Gandalf gets, possibly. Yeah. Uh, I guess the door ward is sensing my hesitation about whether I go on to the next slide. Um, okay, now I'll be super quick. I'll be super quick. <laughs> okay, because we just met Strider. Ta-da! Oh, it's Strider! <laughs> it's Strider. Okay, don't worry. And maybe we'll stop in the middle. I won't go too much longer. I won't go too much longer. Strider, said Frodo. You seem to have a lot of names. Well, Strider is one that I haven't heard before anyway, said Bilbo. What do you call him that for? They call me that in Breeze, said Strider, laughing. And that is how I was introduced to it. And why do you call him Dunedon? asked Frodo. The Dunedon, said Bilbo. He is often called that here. But I thought you knew enough Elvish at least to know Dunedon, man of the West, Numenorian. But this is not the time for lessons, he turned to Strider. Where have you been, my friend? Why weren't you at the feast? The Lady Arwen was there. Strider looked down at Bilbo gravely. I know, he said, but often I must put mirth aside. Eladon and El Rohir have returned out of the wild unlooked for, and they had tidings that I wished to hear at once. I can't help but think that that last comment, they had tidings that I wished to hear at once, um, is designed to be a direct um, uh, contrast with the real news that uh, Bilbo has just been receiving, right? Both Strider and Bilbo are receiving real news. Um, and we're getting a little glimpse there of their different ideas of, um, of, of what real news is, right, in their different frames and with, from their different contexts. Um, Strider is concerned about what's going on in the wild uh, and needs to hear from Eladon and Elro here um, what they learned out in the wild. Um, I love the... Uh, the con- the comment, the Lady Arwen was there, um, is such a richly ambiguous statement by Bilbo. Um, 
he could mean one of several things, right? Um, why weren't you at the feast? The Lady Arwen was there. Like, that should have been sufficient inducement for you to come, right? Something obviously kept you away. If Arwen was there, I would have thought, I would have expected you to be there too, wherever she was, right? Um, uh, yeah, OMG, dude, you stood up your date, says Toramarthen. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm also tempted to interpret it as like, why weren't you at the feast? Arwen was there. So what was your excuse? Like if our, if you and Arwen were both absent from the feast, well, then, okay, I wouldn't be asking any questions, but she was there. So where were you? Um, yeah. Katrina says he almost pictures Bilbo wagging his eyebrows a bit as he says that I would not put that above Bilbo at all. Um, the fact that Aragorn and Arwen are in the midst of this transgressive and semi-tragic love affair, which is like an open secret in Rivendell, right? Uh, and Bilbo is the one who's actually like teasing him about it, right? I mean, I, I, I think that that last, whatever exactly he is implying, um, that last statement I think is definitely hobbitry, right? Um, and I don't think he says it with a leer, but... Um, uh, but I, you know, I think that he, um, uh, he's definitely giving Aragorn a hard time, uh, and, you know, being like, Hey, yeah, like, you know, she, she's your girlfriend after all, like, why weren't you there? So yeah, I, I definitely think that, um, he's actually teasing, uh, Aragorn, um, which is really fun right now. Uh, how does he know? Who was and wasn't at the feast? Um, from the procession, right? Uh, they came in from the feast, and she was there in the procession with Elrond. So, uh, so he knows that she was there at the feast because of how they processed in. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, the, the boomful. Yeah, I think that that could very well be the sort of thrust of his hobbitry there, right? Um, you know, gosh, Aragorn, normally you, fo- you know, when, when Arwen is here, you normally follow her around like a little puppy dog, right? Where were you tonight? What happened? Yeah, I think that that could very well be uh, uh, the direction in which he is teasing her here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder, Ambrosius, if he's, uh, um, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, acting like a mischievous older person trying to get the young folk to not waste you know, love and get on with the romance already. Uh, yeah, everyone else is going to like tactfully not mention, you know, the secret love affair between, you know, the uh, the potentially star-crossed betrothal uh, of uh, and like slightly scandalous uh, uh, of uh, of Aragorn and uh, you know the master's daughter, but um, Bilbo will totally go there. Right. Um, <laughs> Mike says the Lady Arwen was there and here she is now right over there. <laughs> right? Like he's still teasing him. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely. I think all of that could really could really could really be coming into play there. Um, I like Strider's 
laughter. Um, you know, Bilbo's got Strider is one I haven't heard before anyway. Um, uh, Strider doesn't take the bait, right? He doesn't, um, his looking down at Bilbo gravely and saying, I know, but often I must put mirth aside. Um, that is, um, not his, he's shifting the tone, right? Um, he's not rising, uh, to Bilbo's hobbitry. Even Elbo, even Elrond gave back, right? When he, uh, you know, was getting teased, um, by, uh, Bilbo. Um, he's, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't engage there. And I don't know why. Exactly. Lalai says he's got that kingly graveness coming out again. Yeah, he really does. Um, uh, I know, but often I must put mirth aside. Eladon and Elro here have returned out of the wild unlooked for, and they had tidings that I wished to hear at once. It's a very formal speech uh, by, uh, uh, by Strider. Now, it's not unlike him. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, uh, he is, um, um, you know, like becoming extra formal in response or offended or something like that. Um, uh, <laughs> you should hear what Arwen calls him. Oh, man. Um, but... Um, Especially since we know that he is not, well, do we have any good evidence? Strider's closest approach to hobbitry was with the trolls, right? When he was trolling them, uh... Get up, old stone, as he breaks the stick over the stone troll, is the closest he gets to hobbitry. But we almost never. Aragorn, I'm, here's a statement I want to make, and I'm trying to like think if I can think of any counterexamples to it. Strider doesn't seem to be very good at it. Aragorn does not seem to be good at hobbitry. Gandalf is good at it. Even Elrond is pretty good at it. Aragorn seems to be bad at it. Remember, even when he tries it in the Houses of Healing with Mary, he stinks at it. Like, Mary doesn't get it. Mary thinks he's being serious. Like, that speech that he makes about, like, uh, you know, a soldier who's thrown away his gear, right? Mary misunderstands and thinks he's being serious. And then he's like, that was a joke. Right? I mean, like, he's still, like, Captain Serious face the whole time. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of when he successfully does, um, uh, does hobbitry, does jokes, their kind of jokes. It's not to say that there's no affection there, that's not to say, but he... And you know what I'm remembering as we're talking about this? I'm, uh, I'm remembering um, 
I'm remembering Frodo's words to Gandalf, right? Well, I'm not sure fond is quite the right word, right? Fond seems a little familiar, not quite the right tone for Aragorn, right? I mean, he's dear to me, says Frodo, in a much more Aragorn-like tone, uh, that fond is not, that's not, it's not quite right, right? Um, yeah, so he, I, I just, I, it seems like, I'm not sure it's in his idiom, right? Um, so he doesn't make an attempt here. We know that he feels um, affection for them, right? I mean, he's standing there smiling down on them. He's really enjoying seeing them together. Um, but, yeah, I, if, you, if any of you can come up with an example of Aragorn successfully cracking jokes in this way, again, we've seen him try with the trolls. But even that was a little awkward, not quite, doesn't, it's not really in the flow, right? Doesn't exactly, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's pretty good, you know, get up old stone works, but, um, uh, but he just doesn't seem to really nail it in the way. Again, Gandalf does it naturally. Um, the hobbits all do it to each other. Again, even Elrond seemed to be kind of hip to it. Right with Bilbo there earlier earlier on in this scene, um, but I'm not sure that Aragorn really really gets it. Yeah, too much too much gravity. Right, the life absolutely. He's he's grave. Uh, he is, uh, and as um, uh, some of you were suggesting, I forget who who said it earlier on. Um, he he knows his hour is near. Right. Not only is um, uh, not only is he um, uh, like it, it, this is a big. Remember, I, I, that Narsil is about to be reforged. Right. This is a big moment for him. This is a serious time in Aragorn's life. Uh, so even being a <laughs> evil Dr. Cannon says long distance relationships will do that to you. Uh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, but I mean, this is a big, this is not a joking moment, right? Strider is not in a joking frame of mind for lots of reasons. It does not seem to be his natural mode anyway. Um, and I, I would sort of think that being teased about Arwen might be near the very bottom of his list of things that he's excited about at this particular uh, exciting moment in his history. Um, but yeah, it's totally okay. I'm not judging Aragorn for not being able to engage in the hobbitry. It's just, I think I'd never really thought that through before. I think I'd never kind of come to grips with that fact of how awkward um, Aragorn is when it comes to the hobbitry. Um, uh, even Legolas and Gimli are going to be better at it, I think. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Matt says, can you imagine King Arthur, uh, or his excellency, George Washington joking around? It's the same thing with Henry V. Prince Hal can joke around, but King Henry cannot. Um, yeah, there, there's certainly that, that kingly graveness that he has, right? Definitely. And Carrie, that's a really, really good point. Um, so the, uh, his character, of course, the character of Strider, who is really the Dunedon, um, 
was originally played by Trotter the Hobbit with wooden shoes. So when Tolkien first wrote the Bree chapter, um, Trotter was a hobbit. But here's the important, the interesting thing uh, that Carrie is pointing to. A lot of the lines, word for word, that Strider delivers in his conversation with Frodo were originally delivered exactly the same by Trotter the Hobbit in a totally different context. Tolkien is like the master of this when he revises. This minimalist revision in which he will take an exact sentence which he doesn't change even one bit, but by completely changing the context, he makes it mean something quite different. Right, we can see when you go back and compare the first version of that chapter in Bree uh, with the uh, the Strider chapter in the published text, you'll see exactly as Carrie says, these lines which are funny, which are very hobbitry like when Trotter says them in the first version. When Strider says exactly the same thing in Bree, it's not funny anymore. And that's absolutely right. I mean, his even the same lines, which which went off pretty well the first time, don't they're not funny in the same way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, Katrina, that is a perfect example. That's one of uh, I'm pretty sure that's one of those original lines. Um, you put your foot in it, or should I say your finger, right? That was, I'm pretty sure that's one of those Trotter lines, which was, you know, Hobbit-like badinage when Trotter said it. But when Strider says it, it doesn't sound like teasing, right? Um, it sounds like scolding when Strider says it in the common room of the Prancing Pony, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now, so... Jez, I'm not necessarily saying that I think that Aragorn is awkward, right? I'm not wanting, uh, you know, us to imagine Aragorn being socially awkward or, or you know, like some kind of, uh, like, you know, uh, 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 you know, mildly, you know, uh, sort of sociopathic character, right? Yeah, no, he's grave and kingly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that he's socially maladjusted. I'm just saying this is not his idiom. This is not how he operates. Um, yeah, good, Arden Crayon. I am not a black writer, Sam, nor in league with them. As another example of something which, if somebody else said it, would be funny. It's not funny when Strider says it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's just grim. He's just grim. Um, yeah, while I look foul and feel fair, right? That's that's close. That's close. Um, but um, but even that isn't. Uh, well, you know, that's probably closer than any other line we've recalled to being genuine hobbitry. And of course, he inherits it <laughs> from Trotter, right? Um, yeah, yeah, but grimness. Remember grim... Who was it? I forget who it was. Somebody was pointing out that the word grim in Tolkien is very strongly correlated with kings. It's usually kings who are grim, and most kings are grim. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, he totally has that kingly grimness going on. It's part of his, it's part of his thing, and it's, it's okay. That's a, it's, it's a good thing. And it's fine to like him, not only despite of that, but because of it, right? Not everybody has to be, has to do this. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep. 
Um, yeah. Okay. Um, that's it. That's all. See, look at that. See, Doorward, that was 15 minutes, right? We just did a 15-minute slide, and I think I'm good. I think I'm good. He laughs. Strider laughs here. Uh, yeah. Um, Man of the West, Numenorian. One last brief comment, uh, which is, how much do we know of Numenor? This is a really hard question for me to answer because I'm teaching the Notion Club papers in you know on Wednesday nights. So I'm like, oh, I've been thinking a lot about Numenor lately, but I'm just trying to think. You know, it's 1954, and you're reading the Fellowship of the Ring. What do you know about Numenor? What does this sentence mean when Bilbo says, "Man of the West, Numenorian"? How much? What information? does that convey exactly in 1954, right? Um, uh, yeah, we know that he, yes, yeah, so we know that he is from an ancient line If anybody has time between now and next Tuesday to do a quick search, when has Numenor come up? I mean, I know it has come up, but how much have we really learned about Numenor in the text so far? Um, now, get a lot of the Numenor stuff predates, you know, he was working on the Numenor stuff before, so I'm not saying that the Numenor legend doesn't exist or anything. I'm just saying within the frame of this story, what is this meant to convey? What what would this have conveyed? Um, so, um, yeah, exactly, Bruner. By saying 1954, essentially what I'm saying is somebody reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time, um, assuming that they're reading it without having read The Silmarillion first, for instance. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, because that's... So we'll come back to this sentence next time. Um, but... Um, Anyway, so somebody look that up for me, and let's try to remember what exactly has been said about Numenor uh, to see what we, the readers, are supposed to associate with this information that Bilbo is dropping on us here about um, Strider. So anyway, yes, Tormarthen, we should return to that scene about their last adventure and stuff, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, so somebody, somebody... I would love some information on that on the uh, uh, on the discussion board, and we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll begin with that next time. Okay, thank you guys for joining me. Um, I'm gonna uh, move on to the field trip before I get into too much trouble. Um, so I will be here next week, and next week we will totally finish all of the prose leading up to Bilbo's song. Who knows? Maybe we'll even start the song next time. It could happen. Let's not rule that out. Um, so, anyway, um, uh, but now it is time for a field trip. So I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Uh, and you can join us on twitch.tv slash signum you. And thanks to 
those who are joining me in the talent there as well. And we're going to, it's field trip time. So thanks for our text discussion to this evening here. All right. And now time to head out to head out to points west. How are you, Valori? Excellent. Excellent. That's right. And we're probably getting to Gondaman at last here this evening. No absolute promises on that, but probably going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. Right, right. Oh, dread it. Hang on a second. It looks like something's not working. Hang on a second. It looks like your audio is not coming through. Time for, time for yet another round of uh, technical difficulties. Hang on a second. Let me see if I can fix that here before I go too much further. Um, whoa. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're definitely coming through on Discord. I'm. Weird. <laughs> okay. So here's here's the problem that I'm having. The problem that I'm having is I'm going to like my audio program to see if I can see the source of the problem. And when I look at my audio program, I'm like, ah, yes, I see the pro. I see that there is a problem. But it looks like. They should be able to not hear me. <laughs> so what I can't understand is how anyone is even hearing me, actually. Um, that doesn't help. Okay, hang on a second. Let me do one quick thing here. Um, uh, boom, and... Uh, hang on a second. Let me just do that. And yeah, it's Twitch that you're not coming through on, which is what I'm trying to fix. Okay, so hang on a second. Let me, uh, Okay, let's see. Try again. No, still not working. No clue. No clue. Um, all right, hang on a second. Let's uh, let's go with the uh, the emergency solution here. Hang on.
pushing the wrong thing. <laughs> okay. Say something again? sat in the cave alone and he munched and mumbled a barrel bone many years he okay. nodded near for meat it's hard to come by good fixed it right. sort of huzzah, not, huzzah. not really but that's okay okay oh. all right all right okay yeah so you know it's just possible that like my setup is a little more complicated than it needs to be well no not that it needs to be. The problem is that I'm like broadcasting. Oops, hang on a second. I'm doing the wrong thing. I meant to mount my horse. Where's my horse? Oh, here's the horse. Um, uh, they say I'm coming through on Twitch now. So yeah. That's good. Yeah. I got Very you. Uh, Did you try turning it on and off again? Yeah, I think that's actually what I'm going to have to do. But, um, right. but no time for that now. Uh, yes. So, off to Colombian. Off to Colombian, indeed. Um, okay. Cool. But, yeah, as I was saying, like, uh, when it comes to the type of humor that Strider seems to specialize in in the book, it's always, um, it's, it's always sarcasm. Sar sarcasm is definitely his forte. And but, look at the actors uh, who have done the voice work and the, yeah. the acting for Strider. They always pick someone who's very good at that, saying everything straight but with that sort of half smile, either in their voice or in their face. Yeah. I mean, it's not that even from the, from the dialogue that we get, it's not that he's mirthless, you know, again, and, and, and I, I certainly would not want to suggest that the problem is that, um, uh, that Aragorn is like, again, like he's clueless, like he's just like socially inept or something um, at all. No, I think he's, it's, again, it's just not his, it's just not his register. He does do sarcasm. Um, uh, though even that isn't, you know, pervasive, exactly. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, no, it's that I never really, I never really asked myself that question. I mean, I think in part, um, you know, his response to um, the teasing about the Lady Arwen is also perhaps kind of a pointed, like he's not going to give back in that same register there. Like part of it, I think, is a like, okay. I am not I joking about that. that <laughs> I refuse to dignify that with an answer. Exactly. That he's like, okay, you know, I, I am, uh, of hobbitry is not my forte in any case, but I am not going to, and I'm certainly not going to indulge in it on this topic. Thank you very much. Um, see this, I can see why Philbo's missing hobbit gossip, honestly. Yeah. There's some juicy details here and nobody's willing to spill. <laughs> yes. Um, Dish the tea. You do have to think that this sort of thing, um, that yes, in Hobbiton circles, uh, the, um, you know, a, a, a clandestine affair, semi-clandestine affair between, um, you know, young Master Estelle and, uh, you know, the Master's daughter would be handled very differently, right, in the Shire compared to Rivendell. Uh, that certainly seems inevitable. 
Andy Cruz says maybe among other Dunedain he's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for those who've never heard of Hoppetry before, maybe they think right. he's a riot. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I do think you know it's one of the things that is actually kind of interesting because if you think about it, it's kind of natural enough for. Um, uh, it's it's sort of natural enough for a single red. I mean, it's 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 not uncommon in a novel for all of the characters to kind of share a similar register of humor. You know, yeah. Um, even if they have very different backgrounds and very different kinds of personalities, um, so to have this whole you know Hobbit brand of humor be something that is sort of culturally alien to, um, you know, to others. So, and it's, it's easy to miss that at first because Gandalf is good at it. Right. Well met friend. Uh, so of the folks who are, um, of the, of the folks, the non hobbits that we see, we first get him interacting with like a bad data point essentially, right. In Gandalf. Um, so Aragorn is really the first, non-Gandalf oh I guess Tom Bombadil who's also a bad data point but does not interact with them in the same way that that you know Gandalf does certainly um yeah, yeah. Tom Bombadil has his own brand of humor which not even the hobbits understand <laughs> no exactly very different right very different um um and uh and you can tell I mean like that moment that we I was about to say that moment that we discussed. Well, we've kind of discussed all the moments, but um, that moment that we discussed when uh, um, Frodo makes, you know, asks his question about who Tom Bombadil is, and um, and you know, like his when he puts forward his assumption about what the word master means as applied to Tom mm-hmm. Bombadil, and Goldberry is like, oh no, like that would indeed be a burden. Um, it's almost like a non sequitur. In the sense that, like, they're just not operating on the same wavelength. They're not really thinking in the same way at all there. Um, He's certainly not master of ceremonies. Right. Exactly. So, you know, again, we see this. We see this with Bombadil. We see this with Strider. um, uh, That the way that hobbits are with each other, it's different. You know, I mean, Tolkien really does establish that, like, culturally, socially, um, they're different. I mean, he does some of this even in The Hobbit, right? I mean, like, the... The uh-huh. the Tralalalali elves, which so many people dislike from a Lord of the Rings perspective, does a really great job of establishing like elves are just different, man. You know, like they're, they're <laughs> they just don't think about things the same way that we do. The Barrel Song shows the same thing, right? They're just they're different um, uh, they think from about us. Nothing or about everything, and there's no middle ground. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, but. Um, uh, so, yeah, so in fact, we begin to see that Gandalf's um, connection with the hobbits is what's unusual, right? That's what's unexpected. Yeah. Um, anyway. All right, so what do we got here? We got Dwarven Road. Um, what is, oh, the Lynx Mother is attacking things over there? She's hunting. This is the this is from that quest, right? We rescue her, yeah, her kittens, as the I kitties. recall. Yeah, the kitties. Yeah, it's the kitten quest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, all right. So looking at Thrassy's lodge here, it's a very humble dwelling. Um, Thrassy is the dwarf, right? Yeah, he's the one here next to the lynx, bandaging right. his leg. Right. Which was wounded by the lynx, wasn't it? Or something? Uh, How did he hurt himself? Let's see. Da, da, da. It's been so long since I have done the Thrasy's Lodge quests that twisted I... Twisted my ankle something terrible is what he says. Twisted it, okay. Yeah. Right. He twisted it trying to rescue the mother links. Oh, trying to... Okay, I, I thought that had, it had something to do with the links. Um, okay. So this is... So do we have... We have never seen a dwarf construction that was thatch-roofed before. Yeah, we certainly haven't. That's odd. Uh, it's odd, but what's even odder is that we have uh, a ranger standing right here, Langless. And what this does remind me of is the ranger's huts that are dotted throughout. Yeah. So you think that maybe... It, yeah, we could compare this to... Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh Cyrus? Saradin, I think. Saradin, yeah, Saradin. Um, it's an A-E, right? Saradin? Anyway. I don't remember. Yes, that that other ranger that's by Bree, yes, with the cottage. Baldy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, Lilith, that's what I'm beginning to wonder. That's a really good point. Um, this... This ranger standing here in, with uh, you know a sort of proprietary looking stance, this could be a ranger outpost here. Can somebody put up a picture of Siren's cottage by Bree? Somebody get an image of that, a screenshot of that cottage, and post it in Discord, and we can compare. What I'm particularly interested to see is what do the doors and windows in that cottage look like. Well, I know it's got the stone and the thatch on it. I'm not sure about the rest. Yeah, thatched roof certainly seems likely. Notice there seem to be like slate shingles on that tower. Maybe they ran out of shingles at that point. <laughs> okay, oh, the life is is uh, has posted one here. You know, let's see yep. if I... it's smaller, but that's. Uh... And it's a double door instead of a single door, which implies it houses maybe animals, too. Yeah, here I am. But the window's the same. Okay, hang on. Here we go. Okay. There it is. Could be bigger, but... Okay, no, that's not happening. Same kind of window. Yeah. Same kind of chimney, too. Yeah. Yeah, the stone looks very similar. Um... Yeah, if I could get a, a, a closer up of the windows and doors, that would be cool. But, um, yeah. So we got off also, two stories on this one. Yes. Yeah, this is bigger, certainly. Um, it's more, it, it fits the name Lodge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's and these these walls 
these walls look very Breland as well. They certainly do not like, I mean, look, look at the slopes along the top of this wall, right? That is not dwarf construction. I mean, I'm sorry. No No self-respecting dwarf would have built this stone wall. I mean, from a human standpoint, this this is, this is quite a good stone wall from a human standpoint. But, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. No, no dwarf. So I can't, so this may be Thrassy's Lodge in some sense, but I cannot believe that he built it. it yeah, also, it sounds like there is some sort of lean on the place and he swooped in and took advantage of it when the time was right. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe, maybe, maybe Langless owns it, but we're using Thrassy's name to make it sound more regional. Uh, right, possibly, yes. Maybe it's a... Ca- maybe it's a, a ranger's lodge. Maybe it's a tax dodge kind of thing, right? They have, they have the... <laughs> They have the lodge in Thrassy's name, so that uh, you know it's a it's a, it deflects some of the property. Maybe there's an exemption for dwarves owning property in this area. Um, Maybe Thrassy's allowed to stay on and keep the name. Yeah, Maybe they're married. There's lots of possibilities there. Yeah, it's a franchise. Belongsman says, "Yeah, absolutely. It's oh, a it's yeah. a Thrassy is the local franchise owner of this." Uh, this this ranger branch cottage. I agree that the flagstones are dwarvish, um, consistent with the road that we've been following uh, up here. Um, exactly. But the road could have been here long before the place was built. Right. Exactly, Lilith. It makes perfect sense that since this is dwarf territory, dwarfs would levy higher property taxes on humans who had land here, so that's why you would put it in Thrassy's name. It all makes sense. Uh, They're pretty big on paperwork, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tora Martin suggests maybe the dwarves just think of it as Thrassy's Lodge because, you know, they're like, in fact, he's just a dude here with a cat. You know, it's not his lodge at all. They just assume it's his his lodge because, you know, he's he's here. Actually, considering we're out in the middle of nowhere, it sounds like this might have been a a sort of a sort of a, a like a like goal kind of thing where the rangers wanted an outpost and the dwarf was maybe trying to build stuff and they said we'll help you out as long as some of our buddies can stay here so they can keep an eye on things from this point which is pretty isolated it's pretty isolated though it's not subtle it's not like this is a hidden refuge i mean of course very few of the uh of the i mean it's not like esteldine is the most secret thing in the world even though it's supposed to be a secret outpost um but um, oh, we all know how rangers like to gather information in inns, apparently. <laughs> right, exactly. So they just built one so that they could collect information in it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. But sure. So now here's my here's my last question about Thrassy's Lodge. Uh, Thrassy's putative lodge. Um, uh, when do we think it dates from? It doesn't. I have to know when Sarah Dens Lodge was built to know that. Yeah. So it looks about the same. It does. It does not look decrepit. The windows, in particular, look, I mean, they don't look like they're, you know, new construction, but it does not. This is, there's nothing like semi. Like, for instance, contrast with the Forsaken Inn, right? Like, yeah. Now, this could just be better maintained than the Forsaken Inn, conceivably. But um, It's missing the hole in the roof, for one thing. Exactly, exactly. So, again, probably better local maintenance and, and construction. But still, 
it doesn't look shabby. Um, it doesn't look worn down. There are no gaps in the old stone wall here. This is probably not thousands of years old. I agree, Emma yeah. Thorne. This is definitely a third age construction. Yeah, for sure. So the question is, where do we think this lodge most likely dates in relationship to Thorin's people, right? Because so we rem- we know that just around the corner here, I don't want to go all the way down the hill, but like just coming over so we can see a little bit further down, we are quite close to Heladur. Is that the name? The port city down there? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Keladur. So just down the valley there is that was the site of an old Dwarvish city on which Thorin's people built a new place within the last couple centuries. So do we think Thrassi's lodge here up at the top of the hill predated Thorin and company or didn't predate Thorin and company? It was there first and they built Keladul on top of it. See, this is where I'm thinking about the flagstones as evidence, because if you look at this, like, look at this right here. This doesn't look like an add-on, right? This is organic, the, uh, yes. the flagstones, right? The, it, the, yes. the, the walkway up to Thrassi's Lodge looks like it was made at the same time that this other road was. And as I have been opining that the Dwarf Road, this road that we're on here, which is the road that goes right past Bilbo's front door, basically. Right. Uh, this road, which is the, that highway through the Shire and out across the, the Greenway through Bree and out towards, uh, you know, it is, it, you know, it was our idea long since that that was made by Thorne's people, right? Yeah. You know, that that road is only, uh, you know, is, has only been built there for, for, for the last few hundred years um, uh, or certainly been redone. By Thorin and Company, or Thorin and his people. I keep calling them Thorin and Company. Um, uh, over the over the last couple centuries, so that would imply. Well, so what do we think? Because honestly, this could be made to fit either theory, right? If there already was, I mean, the Dunedine would have could have built that large lodge up there, but they wouldn't have built a road up to it. That's not a very rangerish no. thing to do, right? Um, so it's possible that the dwarves seeing this lodge up there and they'll be like, you know, hey, we can come to an accommodation. We're going to pave an extension of the road up to your lodge there so that, you know, we can, you know, use it as a waypost and whatever. Um, and we'll leave, you know, Thrassy here and, and uh, you know, uh, we'll think of it as his lodge from now on. Um you can see them saying, okay, so we'll extend the road up there, no problem. You can also imagine that the lodge was built at the same time. You know, and, you know, so they, they, they first they extended the road up there, and then they're like, we need a lodge. But see, if they did that, then it would probably have been built by the dwarves. I cannot imagine the dwarves saying, we need a lodge built. Eh, let's get somebody else to do it. That's fine. We'll just subcontract that to the, to the Dunedain. I can't imagine that. Um, I have, I have a theory on actually um perhaps there was some there was a different kind of lodge up this road when it was first built and it fell into disrepair and then Thrassi came and wanted to use the site again or had possession of the site and wanted to redo it because there's a perfectly good well not at that point perfectly good but there was an old road leading up to it um mm-hmm. maybe some good foundations still and you know why not let's 
that's built the, the lodge here. By the way, it looks like most of the people up there are hunters, so like this is definitely some sort of sporting lodge. They're right. talking about how big the bears they were they shot, and they're all hunters up there. Yeah, yeah, this is not a, it's not like a village. It's not, uh, nobody, you know, people don't live there. People, you know, sort of use the lodge when they're in the area, and they're, they, they, they come here for the hunting, apparently, right? It sounds like there might be furrier trade, if that's the case. Right, possibly. I guess that's why the road was there in the first place. Also officially in Thrasy's name. So let's see. I'm going to say, yeah, dwarves didn't build it. Clearly dwarves didn't build it. Yeah. So I'm going to say this probably predated. I'm going to go with predated. Um, <laughs> the return of Thorin's people. So that Thorin's people found it when they came back. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, hang on a second. We got a, I got a, 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 a link that I was sent here. Hang on a second. I'm trying to, oh, hang on. Here we go. Okay. And, okay. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Same door, same windows. Absolutely. <laughs> look at those windows. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the door exactly the same. No, that's vintage. Right there, that is vintage Dunedain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, yep. So, yeah, so I think I'm going to go with, since I have to decide on a theory, I'm going to just, my theory is going to be that the Dunedain were here first and they came to an accommodation with Thorin's people because they would have been friendly with Thorin's people or willing to be friendly with Thorin's people. Yeah. Um, and they came to an accommodation here. And uh, so they're still using this. Uh, in fact, it was probably convenient because it's not like, you know, Langlos is ne necessarily going to live here all the time, right? I mean, they're going to probably wander about a bit. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so having... It's like the housekeeper. Right, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that works. Well, let's head on up. There's nothing else south of the road up here, right? We we explored north north of the road pretty well. Yeah, south is a big uh, boxed-in valley, so we can't get into the dangerous part. Okay, right. So this right, it's cut off from yeah. Okay, it's cut off from where we were exploring last time. Just kind of looking on. There's no no evidence, no ruins, nothing interesting over here, right? Bunch of trees. Right, Wrath is down to the south, but it's it's separated. We're just getting and we're get, not getting any dead people. We're just getting deer and bear and hawks and wolves to the north of Lots the path. Of wolves. Lots of hawks. Okay, then we get this like pass. Not exactly a mountain, but uh, certainly a steep rise and. Look at that looming up in front of us. Oh, that is lovely. I can see why they kind of needed a homely house in the middle. Yeah. And you've got all Look these dwarf markers. It's got buttresses on its buttresses. Yeah, this is really aggressively dwarvish. I mean, and we can see... 
this is clearly constructed by Thorin's people. I mean, you can see that from a distance, right? I mean, look at all of this is made out of the new, the newer version of the stone structure. I mean, here we see it right away. This is an older one, right? This, this, um, this obelisk right here. We can see clearly yeah. older, right? This is where we get the, you know, the rust coming down the rock and stuff, just like we saw on some of the, you know, the older markers and a few of the older buildings. But then you get that that vertical blue vein that we get, right, uh, going through the the sort of brownish gray stone, um, just like we saw down at Kelladul, um in the newer stuff. And it looks look how crisp it all looks. German birthday cake. The stonework, yeah. Yeah, this has clearly been up here for less than 200 years. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove that it, you know, was not constructed on an older site. Um, that is to say that there was never anything here before. I mean, it is certainly that a very a, suggestive that location. That might take another field trick. To, you can see which parts is the old stone, which parts is the new stone. Yeah, yeah, we should. We're not going to do all of Gondaman tonight. We'll we'll resume at Gondaman next time. Just doing ending with first impressions here of Gondaman, and my first impressions are definitely all the way down to the foundations. Right? It's not. It's new down to the foundations. Um, see, now that is interesting, Pontine. We need to explore that. So here's what the deed log says about Gondaman: The fortress of Gondaman was once an elven fortress. Abandoned when the elves of Evelion abandoned their former refuge for Dualond, after Scorgrim Dourhand's treacherous assault. The dwarves rebuilt the stronghold to their liking. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to require some convincing that, that was this was once an, elvish, an, an elven fortress. Um, so we'll see. Can we see any other... Now, again, th that confirms, by the way, our theory about the construction. Um, if the elves abandoned it after... Uh, Scorgrim Dourhand's treacherous assault, that was only, what, 400 years ago? Uh-huh. So, um... For their former refuge of Doyland, which, when they came back, was all crumpled and nasty, and they had to build a new one. Right, exactly. So the dwarves rebuilt the stronghold to their liking. The dwarves would then clearly be the Longbeards, right? Um, who, in that time, so since 400 years ago, uh, have rebuilt this. So that pretty much confirms what we're seeing architecturally, uh, uh, of this, is there any remnant, is there any memory of an elvish fortress here in Gondaman? Tune in next time when we totally, yeah. discover if there is any remnant or memory of the elvish fortress or did the dwarves raise it to the ground and start again utterly from scratch as from here, standing on the doorstep of Gondaman, it quite looks like. So, anyway, but we will yeah. stop that. I don't want to get too tempted because once I get drawn into Gondaman as a whole, uh, yeah. I'm going to end up being, there's a, clearly a whole other field trip involved in exploring Gondaman and getting to the heart of this architectural mystery. So, we will <laughs> come back to that next week. Uh, we will resume yeah. in Gondaman. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Glad I sort of sorted my audio issues. And, um, yeah. Uh, and we will see you guys next week for another episode. Good night now. See ya. Good night. 
Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.